Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And joining me for another one of our Sunday show recordings is Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you? Well, it's uh, it's Peach Pog again. And in yeah. fact, you you said I should play this cultural reference that, that went over yes. my head. This bill, then we'll talk. All right, on me in three, two, one. Well, it's Groundhog Day again. And that must mean that we're up here at Gobbler's Knob waiting for the forecast from the world's most famous groundhog weatherman, Punxsutawney Phil, who's just about to tell us how much more winter we can expect. How much more winter can we expect, <laughs> Kyle? Because I feel like it's not winter yet, but we, we got a lot of it already. Yeah, it's going to be like this forever. The month yeah. of October is going to be the longest seven years of our lives. That's that's probably true. So it has been a crazy week. Um, you know, we we talked earlier this week about the debate that happened on Tuesday. That was a shit show. And then the news just kept coming uh, late Thursday night into Friday morning. The president tweeted that both he and the first lady, Melania Trump, tested positive for COVID-19. I think at the top, we'll start by by sending our, our well wishes to the president and his wife, Melania, and hoping for a full and speedy recovery. Um, Luke, I know a lot of Democrats really don't like the president. We have talked excessively in the last few months about how much we don't really like him all that much. But at the end of the day, he is the president of the United States. He also is a person and and nobody wishes uh, this terrible disease on anyone, in, including him. Yeah. I mean, the, the biggest problem with his administration and its handling of this virus has been its lack of empathy for other people and an understanding of the dangers of this virus. And so I think uh, it's important to model the behavior we would want to see. And we know we're not going to see from this president uh, by, you know, wishing him well and hoping that he does recover and wishing that the quality of care and attention that his one case is getting would have been given to the over 200,000 people that have already died and that they would have had the same ability to get treated that he's getting now. That sentiment, Luke, wasn't unanimous, though. Um, I mean, I did see some progressive people talking on Twitter. Well, that's a dangerous sentence, Kyle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, not necessarily leading political figures, but people I follow who were sort of questioning why you would send well wishes to somebody who whose policies and whose actions have caused so much harm on their own. I don't. Luke, you know, to me, it's possible to separate those two things. Do you think that that does that sound right to you? I, I do, uh, because as much as I do not like Donald Trump and I don't like what he's doing to the country, I also think having the president be out of commission during this dangerous time is is not great, especially in this administration, because I don't know if you've seen Death of Stalin, but I keep thinking about that movie in this situation because... Like that, it, there's just such a cold of personality around this president and this presidency. As I, I, I'm working through Bob Woodward's rage right now, and the one thing that is very, very clear about the administration as it stands now is that it is full of people who, rightfully or wrongly, look to Donald Trump for the answer about like when they should go to the bathroom. And if you have an administration built around like whatever Donald Trump says goes, if Donald Trump loses the ability to say things, that like makes it 
difficult for this government to function. And as as dysfunctional as this system is with Donald Trump, like the people who are currently in office being without Donald Trump sounds worse to me. Um, And so, I mean, you know, frankly, it's not good for any president to be out of commission. It's not good for there to ever be a lack of clarity of who is in charge. And so I think in this situation, um, the people who are gleeful over Donald Trump's condition, I think are taking it too far. And that is not to say that he should not be held accountable by voters and by the public and the media. And I mean, everyone, frankly, for gallivanting around the country and around dc acting like this virus could never touch him and sort of a reverse of the mask of the red death situation where they're not hiding from the virus they're they're taunting the virus they're saying it can't you know you call this a virus you can't get me and and the thing i've just frankly been surprised about is that this didn't happen earlier um but that being said like i think that is what you should say rather than focusing on the you know more negative consequences that could come for him in this of you know wishing him to die like that is not going to that does not build a culture or society that anyone should be proud of um and and just because they sink to that level and that they you know for all intents and purposes of what we know at this moment that they likely uh this this outbreak among the Republican Party started where they were gleefully celebrating the death of RBG and their ability to overturn her legacy. Uh, d- despite that, I think that's an, like enough karma for, for one day. Yeah. This, the, the reverberations of his positive test and of the increasing number of positive tests that we're learning about among leading Republicans, there's at least uh, two or three U S senators that have tested positive uh, Tom Tillis from North Carolina has tested positive. Um, uh, Ron Johnson had, and then Mike Lee. Yeah. Ron Johnson and Mike Lee, two other senators, um, Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey and, and Trump advisor who spent a lot of time with Trump preparing him for uh, the debate last week. He tested positive. Um, and a lot of these people were at, the Rose Garden ceremony last weekend where they uh, formally introduced Amy Coney Barrett as their nominee for the Supreme Court. Um, so I think, you know, it's it's too early and it's unclear whether or not, for instance, that event um, or the events of that day, some of which were inside, some of which were outside, it's unclear if those events could be considered super spreader events or, or a vector for transmission among all of these people. But they were, you know, all together um for that last weekend the and, other and they were definitely socially distancing and wearing masks right <laughs> well, i mean were they wearing the biggest mask we've ever seen countless pictures of all them sitting shoulder to shoulder in the rose garden and and video um, of them practically spitting in each other's faces i mean mike lee was hugging everybody he could find at you know celebratory day for them apparently yeah um, well and then uh, you know parts of other parts of that event took place at what looked like you know in different rooms on the white house where they were all you know greeting each other high-fiving each other um the the interesting thing though luke is because there are positive tests and recommendations that some of these people quarantine um, i know senate business on the senate floor has been shut down although business and committees has been allowed to continue by Mitch McConnell um, and then for President Trump, 
you know, he's currently at Walter Reed Hospital. He's been there for three days getting treatment. It's been a bit confusing to follow statements from the White House about what his true condition is. Um, are are you suggesting that this White House might not give us clear information on the health status of the president of the United States? The healthiest man alive who Never is a fit, fit man of 6'4"? Um, but all of that, I mean, you know, sort of set us, setting aside kind of chuckling at the, the misinformation there, all of this means several high-profile key Republican players are at least suggested to be quarantining and, and maybe dealing with symptoms of COVID-19 over a significant portion of the final month of this campaign. So like, what do you think about the sort of downstream impacts on campaigning that we're going to see over the next month or the important, you know, quote unquote, important business that the Senate has to take up trying to push through Barrett's nomination? So as people are listening to this, this will not be exactly right. But as we're recording it, there are 30 days left, seven hours, six minutes and 14 seconds and until Election Day and the polls close in Georgia, at least. And so... I I can't I I know I heard this very recently so I hope I'm remembering this correctly but I remember when Boris Johnson the prime minister of the UK uh was diagnosed with the coronavirus uh he I think was in the hospital for like 17 days and that like let's just assume Trump has that exact timeline or even close to that timeline like that's a long time when there's only 30 days left I mean that's half potentially over half of the days left that he might be in the hospital um and that's just going to be very very difficult to to do because in presidential campaigns i mean i I, i've always been surprised by this but i mean there's been a lot of studies show that like presidential uh, uh visits actually do boost turnout and like help uh in races right like it actually matters when the president like flies to some random airport in iowa and does a speech like at the airport like that will actually boost his numbers um and not not just trump like any president that does it um so like there's consequences this because you know even though we're not seeing big events as much as we used to um even even from trump like he was doing fundraisers he was doing a lot he was actually doing a lot of campaign activity and then like even imagine that stuff wasn't happening and he was being appropriate social distancing i mean trump tweets constantly i mean he's always 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 on twitter doing things and I, I, you know, don't watch his Twitter religiously uh, because I enjoy having peaceful time in my life. Um, but, you know, he, he has slowed down his tweeting significantly. If I recall correctly, I think it was Friday or Saturday, like he didn't tweet anything until he like tweeted out a video of him looking very, very bad, uh, but saying he felt okay. Um, and so like, yeah, there's going to be some downstream consequences of this. I imagine you know, this is probably helping them on the fundraising front some, because I imagine his supporters just, you know, would be sympathetic to his condition and like encourage, you know, just wanting to like send him well wishes in the form of uh, small dollar donations, which, you know, I'm sure a lot of people would do if Joe Biden got sick instead of Trump. So I'm not criticizing that at all. But like, I just don't think that's going to be nearly enough to make up for what he's losing. And then on top of that, and I mean, it's hard to tell, if it would, if this is hurting him or helping him, 
But the most difficult part about this is like you're supposed to quarantine for 14 days after a positive test. And that brushes up really, really close to where the next debate was supposed to be. Um, And that was going to be a town hall debate, which, you know, Trump tried the style he did in the first debate. I don't think that would have gone very well for him. Um, But like it's very unclear if Trump's going to have any other time on stage with Joe Biden to make his case or in like a context in which he's making argument versus where he is now which is as we've kind of talked about on the show and if you've listened to almost anything else it's just like trump tries so incredibly hard to find anything to talk about but coronavirus and now the only thing that people are talking about is not only coronavirus but the fact that the president of the united states has coronavirus and it's probably 100 percent his fault and he could have avoided it had he just done the bare minimum yeah it's like this symbol of all of the policy problems in his administration dealing with this. And one of the things that we're going to talk about today, so I may jump ahead in the outline here, is some of the mailers that you've been getting, Luke, um, about the messages campaigns are trying to send in the final stretch. And, you know, in a lot of ways, the president does not want to talk about his record on coronavirus. I heard on Pod Save America that one of the things his campaign tried to secure in negotiations over the debate rules was having the moderator having the moderator not say the number of people who have died because of coronavirus but in other instances his campaign is actually trying to put a message out there about Trump's leadership on the virus and the actions that he has taken um to to protect people and to help them economically and Luke you sent me this one mailer that has a positive message from the president about his actions responding to the coronavirus. What did that mailer say? Yeah. So this is like one of my favorite mailers I've ever received just because it like really actually truly surprised me Um, because, and we're going to talk about more of these in a minute, but like I've just gotten so much negative mail uh, coming to my house. Uh, Very few of it, very few of them were addressed to me. A lot of them have been addressed to my wife just on John Ossoff and Biden and how like incredibly, incredibly liberal they are and just how, you know, they're going to do crazy things or in John Ossoff's case that he's actually a terrorist um and so i got one finally addressed to me this is the first one of the cycle addressed to me and it has like this like you know <laughs> now let's describe something visually on an audio format uh we'll, we'll, we'll put pictures up of these um on the show notes but the the front of it is like a static white noise tv saying look inside to see what the media isn't telling you the media is controlling what you know and i was just like all right this is gonna be some ridiculous attack on joe biden or something i open it up it's actually trump's doing a great job because <laughs> it's just you know this like nice looking picture of trump signing something and it says this is a truth and it's just talking about uh president trump helped families struggling the most under the coronavirus um and like the three the four sorry the four things they mention is just like good things that are kind of progressive uh you know he added more money to you know talk by to everyone's paychecks with the payroll tax that that's less progressive but it feels progressive in the moment um extended unemployment benefits uh protecting uh renters and homeowners and then suspended student loan payments and i mean it's just you know a very positive message and so i was just surprised that like that is what they sent me well, and as a side note, we'll we'll do a little more analysis of this in a second. My favorite part about all Trump ads where he is, they put a picture up of him signing something. It's meant to show him 
acting and being decisive. He's always just signing his own signature in a super large font on a blank piece of paper. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know why. I don't think he's actually signing. I don't know if he's signing real legislation in this one or not. But yeah, I thought that this was interesting. He picked four sort of progressive sounding things. These are actually four policy items that Democrats have pressed on, have wanted in congressional negotiations. And so he highlights his own executive action on all four of these things. And then he hits Democrats from walking away from the negotiating table. Like a lot of his stuff, that is a distortion and and not a full representation of what's actually going on in Congress. Um, But this is this was surprising to me given him trying to portray a positive uh, record on coronavirus and on his actions. And I think that any effort of his campaign to do that has now just been entirely consumed by his positive diagnosis. And, you know, I don't think that they now want to talk about this at all because his own health, his own uh, personal experience, he has become victim to all of his policy failures. I would disagree with you. He's not victim to all of his policy failures because like Donald Trump is receiving top notch quality care and like there's no question of if he needs to go on a ventilator, will it be there? There's no question about like it are they going to have enough tests to keep testing him to see if he's actually clear of coronavirus. There's no question on if he's going to have the supplies that he needs to get these this top of the line experimental treatment, which I'm just going to go on a wild guess. If I get diagnosed with coronavirus tomorrow and have to be hospitalized and I ask for that, they will not have it available for me. Um, I mean, it'd be great if they did, but I really doubt they're going to. Um, and so he he's not suffering the consequences of his actions in the way that most other Americans are. And he, he flippantly, you know, daring the virus to, you know, try and get him it's it's hurting him in a lot of ways and i'm sure he's feeling very very crappy right now um and is scared but the the thing that like donald trump has is a whole staff of people around him who are kind of unquestionably the best in the nation when it comes to the medical staff around him that are trying to take care of him and he is assured that like he's going to be taken care of and that there will not be dire consequences to his uh life or safety that, uh, you know, are not directly connected to the virus that he has inside him right now. And so is this, you think, a, a, a proper moment to contrast? You know, when you were saying what you just said, the thing that came to mind for me is, you know, he has access to this top-notch care, but he is supporting a lawsuit that would have the uh, Supreme Court potentially find the Affordable Care Act unconstitutional. He's tried to have the law repealed. He keeps saying he has a replacement for for the ACA that's going to be better and cheaper. And, and I think most people understand that that's bullshit. Well, um, I mean, going even further is, again, as we mentioned earlier, he probably was exposed to the coronavirus at his basically you know lawn party for getting rid of the aca and you know the culmination of of that work so is that just a round out on sort of like the way democrats approach the approach the politics of this it, it doesn't feel out of line for for you in this moment to inject those contrasts those like meaningful concrete policy contrasts into this conversation about the president's 
health condition as he as he battles COVID nineteen. No, because facts are stubborn things, and just because uh, he has gotten sick and risked his life and the lives of others does not mean I want him to die. So let's talk a little bit about some of the other mail that you've gotten. But I wanted to sort of set a grounding question here first for our listeners. You know, I, I think you've been involved in designing mail as a part of campaigns you've been involved in. You get a lot of this mail, so I think you've been thinking a lot about the messages that campaigns are trying to send here when they when they send out mail. Can you just explain for our listeners what campaigns are hoping to accomplish when they pay to send mailers to people's houses? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the usual caveat that like depends on the campaign and depends on uh, what the dynamics of that race are. Because like, I, I really sincerely doubt Donald Trump sends a mail piece to anybody's house with the hope of like, man, no one knows who I am. I really hope that they like get my name recognition up. Um, whereas like for the state house races I work on a lot of times, that is actually a big part of it is like nobody knows who any of these folks are. And like we have to educate people on like their biography and their background and like why they're like good normal people who have families um whereas like bigger races don't have to do that nearly as much so that caveat formally firmly in mind i mean so direct mail has some purposes that are shared between campaigns big and small the first like two big categories i would highlight are persuasion and turnout these are things that pretty much every campaign activity is aimed at to some extent and so there are some mailers that are sent to people to try to like persuade them about like why your candidate is uh, better than the other one or why your candidate is, you know, someone you should be taking a look at, even if you usually vote for paying it to the other party. And then there's some mailers that are just purely for turnout and that like they aren't really making an argument about who you should vote for, but they're more making an argument that, hey, you need to go out and vote. Um, for me, this cycle, I, I've seen mostly the persuasion uh mailers but i have gotten some turnout ones as as well but this definitely is a race i think right now um where republicans especially because that's the vast majority of the mail i've been getting are afraid they're going to lose voters that they typically rely on yeah luke in that light i i think it's interesting i have been seeing for listeners i'm in florida uh which is an interesting experience being in, I mean, Georgia is also one of the most competitive swing states, but Florida is about as competitive as it gets. And it's, and is just totally doused in ads during this campaign season. I have seen several variations of this ad that takes a clip of Biden speaking to supporters about his tax plan. Um, Let's listen to one version of this ad. If Joe Biden gets elected, we can kiss goodbye to the economy that we've been enjoying. He's going to raise taxes. He's already said that. If you elect me, your taxes are going to be raised, not cut. I'm a small business owner. The last thing I need is more regulation and more taxes. I feel very confident in President Trump's ability to get our economy back to where it was and even better. Before the pandemic, our economy was the best it had ever been, the best in the world. If Donald Trump stays president, my outlook for the future is incredibly optimistic. It's limitless. I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message. So, Luke, you also got a mailer that hits on that same point about Biden uh, saying, if you elect me, your taxes are going to get raised, not cut. Um, and it actually, the mailer that you got, sort of add some context to that statement. Again, not entirely correct context, but the mailer you got says, Joe Biden says, and then it puts 
the the transcript up of what he said at that campaign rally in that moment. And then it says Joe Biden means seniors, small businesses, middle class families will pay higher taxes. Biden's four trillion dollar tax hike would be the biggest in history. Again, that context is not accurate. But I have seen over and over again, that clip of Joe Biden saying, if you elect me, your taxes are going to get raised, not cut. Do you think that that message is effective? And is it worth it for Democrats to attack the context of that ad and try to explain, well, this is what he meant and who he was talking to and all of that, or pivot to something else? So I think this is really easy. And Biden has done this sometimes. But like everyone, whoever has this point brought up to them should answer it the exact same way, which is the truthful way which is ask the person saying Joe Biden's going to raise my taxes. Do you make $400,000 a year? And if they say yes, then say, okay, he's actually going to raise your taxes. And then if they say no, which I imagine the vast majority of people who would ever ask you that question would say, then say Joe Biden's not going to raise your taxes because I don't know if the $4 trillion number or the biggest tax hike in history uh, is true because if, you know, there was a bill that got passed that made one person pay $1 more in tax, the Republicans would say it's the biggest tax increase in history because that's just what they always say. But even if it is, very few people make over $400,000 a year. And while I am 100% sure some of those people are senior small businesses and middle class families because the middle class is so incredibly large <laughs> of a group in <laughs> definitional terms. Like, I'm sure that's true for somebody. The vast majority of people, that is not true for. Um, and while I know that he was saying that to someone who is pretty wealthy in that, uh, in that campaign event, getting into that is really, really not necessary. And so the too long dig it read version is just telling people if they say Joe Biden's going to raise your taxes, say his plan only raises taxes on people who uh, have incomes of over $400,000. After the last four years, it's hard to call some of these sort of more normal feeling statements a gaffe. But is that kind of a gaffe on Joe Biden's part to give Republicans and and their allies at super PACs, this language where Joe Biden did himself say, if you elect me, your taxes are going to get raised, not cut. Yes, but I also recognize that had he said, if you make over $400,000 a year, your taxes are going to be raised, not cut. They would have just cut that clip to say, your taxes are going to be raised, not cut. Right? Like, I hate to be the first one to tell you this, Kyle, but like the Republicans don't play fairly and they will take any opportunity to take someone out of context if they can find it. Because also on this exact same mailer is Biden saying, I guarantee you we're going to end fossil fuel. And they say uh, on the side part of it, Biden, his Green New Deal would spend $2 trillion destroying millions of blue collar energy jobs and threatening our way of life. And Joe Biden during the debate and many other times said, I do not support the Green New Deal. And so like he can even say, I don't support the Green New Deal a hundred times, and they will still say he does because, like, Biden could have said, I'm going to cut your taxes. I'm going to cut Jeff Bezos' taxes. I'm going to cut Donald Trump's taxes. And they would still say he's going to raise taxes because they don't 
play fairly and they love to lie the other thing i find kind of amusing is nobody can decide how much the green new deal actually costs like your mailer says that biden would spend two trillion dollars in the green new deal but at the debate the other night uh trump was saying that it was biden's a hundred trillion dollar green new deal and i'm like a hundred trillion dollars that's not even like a real figure that's what made me think that he probably just pulled that number right out of thin air Let's shift here and and bring this down to Georgia. You have gotten a group of mailers that you've referenced a couple of times over the last few shows that we've done that basically try to paint a loose connection between John Ossoff, Democratic Senate candidate, and Al Jazeera, a television network um, based out of the Middle East. Tell us a little bit about these mailers that you've gotten and the message that you feel these mailers are trying to send and whether or not that's an effective message from David Perdue and his allies at Super PACs um, at this stage in the campaign. So there was a four-day period where I got three mailers that were pretty similar to what I'm about to, to talk to y'all about. So I'll just I'll just start with like the front part of it. And it's got like... uh. The flag of Qatar, the logo for Al Jazeera, and then the flags of Hezbollah and Hamas and money going between them, and then money going to John Ossoff. And it just says, uh, Al Jazeera, a TV network with terrorist ties. So why did John Ossoff's company produce nine films for them? And I really think that's all they're hoping you see, is that like scary Oh, yeah, there's also like an image of a dude that looks like a terrorist on it. So scary terrorist guy, John Ossoff, Al Jazeera sounds like a, uh, you know, Al like kind of sounds like Al Qaeda. Okay, cool. Terrorist. Not good. Don't like him. Like, I think that is the level of analysis they're hoping people do. Um, but that is obviously not even close to the truth. And there's a lot of things we could say about Al Jazeera as a TV network and the good things and bad things about it. I think Jim Galloway did an excellent job in the AJC of covering those things. And so I'm not going to go into as much detail as he does, but the, I think though, Luke, real quick, the one detail I would point out that I think is relevant here is that John Ossoff owns a media company and Al Jazeera was a client of John Ossoff's London based media company. John Ossoff's media company also sells the films that they make these investigative films to several other different broadcasting companies like they've sold to PBS they've sold to the the British broadcasting company the Canadian broadcasting company a lot of like sort of like public media type companies that get the content that John Ossoff's media company produces Al Jazeera also gets some of the content that John Ossoff's media company produces the same way that PBS and the BBC do yeah I mean to my knowledge because like I like I have met John Ossoff. I would not say I know John Ossoff, but like I've run into him a couple times. I've seen him speak many times uh, before the pandemic and after. And the way I always heard him explain this is that his company would make a documentary and then they would shop it to people and say, hey, we have this documentary already made. Would you like to run it on your news network? And they buy it from him. So the other key thing here is like Al Jazeera, like, you like it, you hate it, you have concerns about it or not, like, he wasn't making anything specifically for them, to my knowledge. Like, I want to be very clear, that's to my knowledge from what I've read and seen, like, maybe he did, but I don't think he did from from everything I've heard of. Um, And so, on that 
since like the like these these mailers will like have you believe that john ossoff is like filming videos of people getting decapitated personally and that's just like not what's happening here at all um and the other thing is is just you know just in the same way that when some guys in montana or whatever wherever they were south dakota that like hold up in a government building for a month with a bunch of guns or whenever the proud boys are being covered uh those are not groups that you know cnn affiliates with but they cover it fox news covers these things but that does not mean they affiliate with it and so in the same way if you are a news network in the middle east and you don't cover terrorism it would be kind of weird because of course like if the terrorist that is in your area puts out a video, you're going to run it in the same way the United States ran a lot of videos that Osama bin Laden put out. And so, like, the, the, the fact that it has a name that sounds like a terrorist organization to, you know, people who are not familiar with it and that they're just, like, putting all these pictures and making it look like there's something fishy going on here it does not take longer than about you know three minutes of looking into this to see that this is just full of crap yeah and i mean even even to be even more generous to their point there is a difference between you know i mean who knows exactly what the finances of al jazeera look like what that corporate structure looks like i don't i don't think we know a ton about that again john ossoff's company is just selling content to them as a media company, the way he sold content to PBS, the Canadian broadcasting company, the British broadcasting company, you know, it's, you know, it's not as if, as I understand it, it's not as if his media company is like working on contracts being directed by Al Jazeera. Um, but I, I have a question though, about this connection though, Luke, to me, just seeing the phrase, Al Jazeera and Ossoff next to each other is, I think, supposed to conjure up for people memories of these bin Laden tapes being released and when a lot of these bin Laden tapes were released when he would make statements to the world. American media would play the video of those statements as released by Al Jazeera. And so you have Al Jazeera's logo in the corner the same way that if CNN played any sort of tape on their news program, the footage would be that tape with CNN's logo in the corner. I have those memories because, you know, you and I are are old enough to have been consuming news in the early 2000s when, you know, when a, the release of a Bin Laden tape was like a big news event that, that ran on cable sort of endlessly on hours and, and brought commentary back and forth. And obviously a lot of the voters that Purdue would be targeting or even older than that and remember that too. Also, though, that was a long time ago now. And Galloway's article notes that this line of attack uh, was levied against John Ossoff when he ran in the special election for the House seat in Georgia's uh, in Georgia's six. Um, Purdue, in some of his ads going back to 2014, makes this similar effort to create a loose tie between donations from a foundation and terrorist organizations. We're just a long time from that period though. And all of our attention has been sucked into COVID-19 and its impact on our country this year. How effective do you think that tie is going to be given how long it's been? I mean, I'm biased because I saw that ad and immediately knew it was 
BS, um, but I have a lot of background information. And I also, in, in that having a lot of background information, I know that uh, former Senator Saxby Chambliss, uh, whose seat uh, David Perdue finds himself in, got into that seat by running a very similar ad campaign against Max Cleland, who was a like war hero, unquestionably, who lost multiple limbs in Vietnam and that ad campaign was successful in painting him as someone who was weak on terrorism and was like unwilling to prosecute the case against terrorist organizations because I guess he supports them, question mark, was the, the takeaway from a lot of those ads. In fact, let's listen to that ad from 2002. As America faces terrorists and extremist dictators, Max Cleland runs television ads claiming he has the courage to lead. He says he supports President Bush at every opportunity, but that's not the truth. Since July, Max Cleland has voted against the president's vital homeland security efforts 11 times. Max Cleland says he has the courage to lead, but the record proves Max Cleland is just misleading. And, you know, because again, let's let's keep you know, doing visual, visual audio things <laughs> on a podcast. But, you know, if you don't remember this ad from 2002, which I'm sure everyone listening does, of course, but just, you know, for that one person that probably is listening and doesn't remember this ad, there's lots of pictures of, like, Osama bin Logging and Max Cleland kind of close together. Um, this version we found did not have them in the same frame, but I've always heard rumor there was a version of this that did uh, run that way. And I, I have seen pictures of billboards that had both of their faces on them together. Um, and to me, this is just so reminiscent of that. And it's just so, so similar. I think the bigger thing is, and I know this is where we wanted to go with this Peru conversation that I find fascinating. I was really, really read into the Peru campaign in 14. Uh, I tracked David Perdue. I went to a fish fry uh, with David Perdue and recorded audio of him. Uh, I, um, you know, was working on the Michelle Nung and Jason Carter campaign and like was around Perdue a lot and saw him a lot and heard him campaign a lot. Um, and he is running a very different campaign this time uh, because last time he was very unapologetically conservative. I mean, his whole campaign, I think, to like sum it up very quickly and i will say i am paraphrasing but I, I don't think he would disagree with this characterization uh basically i'm an outsider and despite my cousin being <laughs> governor of georgia i you know am completely disconnected from the political establishment and so because of that i will fight for the conservative causes that georgia voters actually care about and will be the conservative that georgians have wanted for a long time but have never been able to get and in a lot of ways I honestly think he's been very truthful to that. Like, he has been very unapologetically conservative. He's not been very swingy at all. He's been a stalwart conservative the whole time. And the thing that I think is, like, really notable on that is that he was unapologetically conservative and pushed all the conservative talking points, policy goals, etc., etc. And now this time, all of his positive ads are just really, really um, unquestionably adopting progressive positions of, like, pandemic relief. But more importantly than even that is the pre-existing condition ads that he's been running. You want to do that one? Health insurance should always cover pre-existing conditions for anyone, period. Unfortunately, 
Some people want to play political games with this. I just think it's the right thing to do. Isn't that what we all want? I'm a cancer survivor. I've lived this problem. David's making a difference for all of us. And anyone who says otherwise doesn't know my big brother's heart. I'm David Perdue, and I approve this message. Well, it may be David Perdue's heart that pre-existing conditions should be covered, but it's definitely not his voting record, since he's kind of gone out of his way to vote against the only thing standing in the way between pre-existing conditions being covered and them not being covered, which is the Affordable Care Act. And so, you know, the only person playing political games with pre-existing conditions is, in fact, David Perdue. Do you think, though, that... I mean, we obviously quibble with the 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 facts here we don't quibble with the facts we point them out because as i said earlier facts are stubborn things is this two-sided campaign effective i think i think we've come back to this point a couple of times where he has this task of keeping swing voters in his camp even if they may not like the president and this pre-existing conditions ad is obviously targeted at, at that group the mailers alleging that John Ossoff is a terrorist is, I believe, targeted at a completely different group. Any thoughts on, you know, as we continue through this campaign, as we, as this sort of like two-sided or two-faced campaign continues on about, you know, is is that the formula for success for him? And success, to remind people, is winning this election, even if he wins it by five votes. Yeah, so I actually disagree with you. These ads are made for the exact same people because... Hmm. The mailers are addressed to my wife, who probably does not remember open line tapes uh, very much, but like still probably thinks, you know, I, I, I can confirm my wife thinks terrorism is bad. So, you know, uh, if they, you know, aiming it for people like her, uh, who, you know, everyone thinks terrorism is bad for the most part. So, yeah, that, that makes sense. But like the, you know, joking and equivocating aside, like the thing that these ads are aimed for in my mind is basically Democrats have been incredibly effective since Trump got elected at saying Republicans do not care about you and they are going to take away your health care. Like that is basically what we ran on in 18 and one. And what Purdue is trying to do is a two pronged attack on that one. I love health care. I love protecting pre-existing conditions and Anyone that says that is stupid because, of course, I would do that is is prong one. And then prong two is, by the way, these people are crazy. And if you elect them, they will do crazy things. And so he's the, the, the two prongs of this attack are actually aimed at the same thing, which is like the positive ads are saying I'm reasonable because you are also reasonable and you want pre-existing conditions protecting. And so do I. So look at us. We agree. And then pointing to the other folks of like even if you like them even if you think you like them and trust them more on this pre-existing conditions thing like they're crazy and they're going to you know empower rioters and you know i I don't know what else they think they're going to do because the thing that i find so fascinating in this race compared to 2014 and this is why i bring it back up is like purdue was running on the fact that he was very conservative, right? Like, that was a positive thing about his campaign that he said was good. And this time, he is pushing that down as hard as he possibly can to make him look like he supports all the things that Democrats in Congress are actually fighting for and things that he's, like, consistently voting against. He's saying, I support. And 
He's just hoping that people don't notice that because I've actually seen other Republicans do it. And the really funny thing is I've seen Republicans in the state house doing this before I've seen statewide Republican candidates doing this in Georgia is this really fascinating two-step they do of basically adopting all of these Democrat positions or platitudes and then attacking their opponents for being crazy, right? Like that is their go-to strategy. And it's, if you, t- again, it's a three-minute test, right? If you took three minutes to see how Purdue is voting, you would know that he's full of shit and all these ads are false, but they're just praying and hoping that people don't take, do that three minutes, And it's a lot easier in a pandemic year because there's just so fewer opportunities for your candidate to oppose you directly, uh, you know, like on a stage or something uh, about about these attacks. And I mean, that's the the fascinating thing. We haven't talked about John Ossoff. I think next week we we probably should. But he's been running a lot of ads that I think are really effective on this. Well, actually, I want to play one right now because I think uh, Ossoff is trying to rebut this claim directly. And in some ways, I think he has a bit of an easier task uh, from a messaging standpoint um, because it leans into the the thing people are experiencing in their lives right now. Here, here is uh, an Ossoff ad from a couple days ago. I'm John Ossoff, and I approve this message. Senator David Perdue profited from the pandemic while he downplayed the risk, undermined doctors and scientists, compared coronavirus to the common flu. We've had ordinary flu seasons with more deaths. Now, even in the middle of this pandemic, David Perdue is trying to let insurance companies deny coverage to people with pre-existing conditions like cancer, diabetes, and heart disease. David Perdue, out for himself, not for our health. Yeah, and I, I I like that ad. I've seen that ad a couple times, and uh, Ossoff also has a lot of good ads he's been doing on his front porch. Um, I, I I've been advocating for a front porch campaign in Georgia for a long time, so I, I really like the fact that he's been doing that. Um, and I I've, I've liked a lot of those ads, and I think we should definitely talk more about what he's doing next week. Um, but so I think the interesting thing Purdue has been trying to do is he's tried to create distance from Trump. Very, very subtly. I mean, he might not even see this as distance, being honest. Uh, but he's tried to make it clear that he takes the pandemic seriously and that like, he thinks it's a problem without... You know, without like making it awkward for him to be a Trump supporter at the same time, right? Yeah, I mean, he's not blaming the president for the pandemic... Um, and he has not sort of raised the same skepticism around masks and done that kind of stuff. Um, this is a very, like in contrast, and we've mentioned this before, but I think it's really true and interesting to point out far, far less of his campaign, like just in general, like as a whole product is the social wars, like long order stuff right like he's doing it like he does have a a anti-john ossoff ad that is you know basically saying that john ossoff is radical and with the you know protesters and is gonna like turn over the country to antifa i'm david purdue and i approve this message riots destroying cities officers hunted down but john ossoff supports defunding police as america unites to beat a pandemic Ossoff speaks hate. 
You're not just gonna get beaten. You're gonna get beaten so bad you can never run or show your face again in public. Senator, no way. John Ossoff's far too radical. This episode of Peach Pie was brought to you by David Perdue's campaign for Senate. David Perdue. <laughs> he's he's right for Georgia. I have no idea what his slogan is. Um, but yeah, we have we have given David Perdue quite a lot of time today. But I think it's important just to talk about these things because like there's a reason he's running that act. And what has been really, really fun and fascinating is I, I don't watch a ton of TV, but I probably watch like at least like an hour in the background or something while I'm doing something else. And what I've noticed is a really interesting shift is the positive Purdue ads that we started the show with. That was all I was seeing of David Purdue ads for a really long time. And I'd say maybe in the past two weeks, it's shifted to the negative ones being played a lot more. And I've started to see them like online when I'm like watching something on YouTube or something. And so that shift has been really interesting to me. And I'm honestly surprised it didn't come sooner just because from the polling I've seen, the defund the police conversation is one where it doesn't poll great for Democrats for kind of obvious reasons. Um, And Purdue just hadn't been hitting us off on these things uh, for a while. And I know when we initially talked about when you have this conversation about like how Purdue was coming after us off. Uh, I, we were going to spend a lot of time talking about the interesting contrast that like all of his TV ads were positive and all of his um, mail was really, really negative. And now it's kind of shifted to where I feel like I'm seeing just as much negative on TV as I am in the mail. I would note an interesting sort of stylistic choice about that ad and about the shift that we've seen. Um, I would infer that David Perdue is is paying for some top-notch, you know, communications consultants to help him put these things together. That negative ad, aside from Purdue giving the I approve this message disclaimer at the top, does not that ad does not feature his voice at all. Um it features a female voice as a narrator and Purdue's positive ads all feature him basically for the duration of the ad or he sort of introduces a speaker that that makes a um, a positive point for him about his own agenda. And in all of the ads where you hear Purdue's voice, he's very soft-spoken. It's it's pretty calming. You know, he's got a good, like, sort of like calming, older guy, Southern accent thing going on. Which is consistent with his 14 campaign, I just want to point out. Like, that's almost exactly what his positive ads were like last time. And then the only, that I think they make a deliberate choice to contrast that with the way in which you heard Ossoff in that last uh, ad making a speech at some sort of rally or democratic event where he's fired up and, and sounds really angry. Um, if you listen to John Ossoff in other contexts, he is also kind of a, a soft-spoken, not, not the angry radical personality that is portrayed there. But of course, you know, that's the contrast they're trying to create. It's just interesting to me so much of David Perdue's persona over the last few years has been to be a fighter for the president. And he has been very sharp with Democrats in a lot of instances on appearances that are not his own ads. 
but his in his ads he's very soft spoken and, and Ossoff is not. Yeah, and I think what's also so funny too is that like that that might be the one clip of John Ossoff being like passionate that I've ever heard in my life because most of the time, like when I saw him speak or I just like saw any clip of John Ossoff, I'd be like, man, the dude is like well spoken. Like he's he's just very. This is not the exact word I want to use, but it's close enough. He's like he's kind of stiff, you know. Like he's very um overly formalistic sometimes and that's been a criticism i've had so it's it's kind of funny that they were able to find this clip honestly because so so many times i feel like Ossoff is uh not that moog at all let's close today's show by talking about three uh questions that you're going to see on your ballot when you vote in georgia two of which are constitutional amendments and, and the third of which is is just a ballot question the two constitutional amendments, the first one uh, deals with the sort of fees and taxes that are raised for specific purposes. Often you'll see legislation that raises a fee, like, for instance, and we'll share an overview that Maggie Lee at Supporter Report published earlier this week. Um, she cites a dollar fee that Georgians pay when they buy a new tire. That fee is meant to go to cleaning up illegal tire dumps. But there has been some controversy in recent years about whether or not the legislature is actually dedicating the funds to purposes that were established when these fees were put into place. Um, so this is going to be a vote on whether or not the Constitution is amended in a way that results in those fees going to the purposes sort of as advertised. The second question deals with whether or not the state of Georgia as a government and local governments in Georgia have sovereign immunity. We'll talk about what that one is. And the third one, it deals with a tax exemption for charities like Habitat for Humanity that build homes for people. Luke, Give us your thoughts on these three questions that people are going to see on their ballots. So right off the bat, I'm going to say a vote for all three of these. Um, I It's so interesting because for so many sessions, and especially election year sessions, there would be ballot questions that get on that really, to me, felt like very bad policy that was purely there to just get people to turn out and vote or piss people off in general or would be like some really big political priority for the governor and this time we don't have that and i think a big reason why we don't is because the democrats have been making up a lot of ground in the state house and that they just frankly didn't have the votes to do these things um just so a reminder that constitutional amendments require two-thirds of the legislature to back them so when republicans lost super majorities in the house and the senate they couldn't ram through their ideological and policy priorities on just their own votes. And because Democrats oppose them, that's the reason you're not seeing these on the ballot. Correct. But I, you know, and I, I think this is, goes back to the fact that them not having enough seats to even do it. Like they didn't even have some of these types of measures that gained any traction whatsoever. Right. So like, even if they had tried they didn't even try, I guess that's what I'm getting at. And so for these, these are like very straightforward and very uncontroversial, I think. Um, they have deep impacts and, uh, you know, will have consequences. But as far as, um, you know, what what they're going to do to the state, I don't think it's super controversial. Um, I mean, on the first one, 
I, I've always been frustrated when the legislature, because they do this a lot. It's not just the tire thing. The tire thing is probably just the easiest example to explain quickly. But they will, you know, create fees and say, yep, this money is going towards this thing. And then it never goes towards that thing. And I, I think when you're going to do that, I, I really think you should stick to it. Um, because if there's a problem that you felt was necessary to pass a bill to put money towards it, like then you actually probably like it's probably a real problem and it probably needs to uh, have have money to address it. And I like the structure of how this will work. Uh, the supermajority to put one of these things up and a supermajority to take it away. Like, I think that's fair um, because the current pandemic situation highlights like sometimes maybe there's some money you could really really use desperately right like if we were using some of the tire disposal fee money right now for education like i don't think that's a terrible thing um but you know when the economy is doing better and we create a bunch of fees like this i think it makes a ton of sense to uh keep that money where it's supposed to go so for the second ballot question which is sovereign immunity that's been in the news a lot um the Big thing is for this specific bill is that it's you should think of this as being very Georgia specific. We basically had a Georgia Supreme Court ruling that was like, yeah, you can't sue the state of Georgia ever, basically. Like they could just be doing very, very blatantly unconstitutional things. And it was very difficult to get that challenge up at all, just based on the way that this Georgia Supreme Court was interpreting the Georgia constitution and so this would basically make that not be as strong of a defense and i think that is a good thing because people need to have an ability to hold the government accountable and so that i think is a a worthy thing to do and so i i hope that people support that one as well and then the last one is is very small but very important. Um, you know, I worked at Habitat for Humanity for a while, so I am obviously biased to thinking that organization does great work that helps people. But I, I still think my bias aside, that is true. And and, and this this ballot question would uh, waive property taxes uh, for nonprofits that offer no interest loans. And I think home ownership is such a giant problem in Georgia and around the country. Frankly, I think this is a great thing and a great opportunity for georgia to work on those housing issues so um i i really this is a surprising year where i'm like not having to like you know shoot a flare up in the sky and like warn people about the ballot questions because they're all lies i mean this this year it's fine uh from my recollection i think all three of these passed with pretty healthy majorities in both houses so yeah so like i i don't really think anything's controversial here and i think they all um, we'll, we'll do good things for the state. And I mean, really for me, the one that I was a little worried about was the fees one, just cause I was wondering how inflexible it was, but you know, super majority, that's a pretty fair requirement, I think. And it, it is responsive to times of crisis. Like we're in now, like it would not be hard to get a super majority to divert some of that funding away, um, in a crisis, but other times if they, you know, a super majority giveth a super majority taketh away. Yeah, I think I think broadly I agree. I think the thing that comes to mind when you think about the the third one regarding Habitat for Humanity, obviously I agree with you. I think the work that Habitat for Humanity does is great. Um I do think in some ways it's symbolic of a policy failure from state governments and, and local governments on housing affordability. That like it really shouldn't take a nonprofit 
building homes and offering uh, low interest or no interest loans to people to solve this housing affordability problem. Like it's great that they do that. And maybe local governments should be partnering more with organizations like Habitat for Humanity to kind of scale that up and, and make that, uh, make that a broader solution for people. But as I understand it, it's, it's still sort of a relatively small organization that is kind of building homes and in one-off instances for people and not sort of like a, a universal or near universal program that anybody can access. And and the problem of housing affordability is becoming more widespread, not just for people who have found themselves in, in really dire economic circumstances, but even for people who have, you know, relatively good, good and stable jobs, like housing is just taking up more and more of people's income. And, and it would be better, I think, in some ways, this just like highlights for me the need to have a broader discussion there. But, you know, in this individual instance, this particular ballot question, I, I think it's a good idea. So thank you to a couple listeners for pointing those ballot questions out to us. Um, we are going to leave that there for today. Um, we're going to be back with the regular crew again next week. And, and Luke and I will be back together again next Sunday. Um, lots of other content in your feed. Um, so check out and refresh your feeds for for some of our latest shows. We got things coming from a lot of different angles, looking at the Supreme Court vacancy, looking at immigration policy and politics in Georgia. We're trying to cover a lot of different things going on in Georgia as we get close to election day. Luke, thank you as always for for joining the show. Uh, happy to be here. And yeah, let's see before this 30 days is out if we have uh, seven shows in one week. <laughs> we might. We'll see. I don't know. I'm tired. I'm ready for November to be here. Alrighty, y'all. We'll talk to you again soon. Bye. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks as always to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.